Okay, there we go. Okay, perfect. And I think we're good. All right. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of pick up, um, yeah, where we left off, mm-hmm. where Ellis and I um, were talking about, and um, yeah, we started by talking about nausea mm. um, and kind of the idea that um, that Sartre finishes with, which is like the, um, he wants to write this book, right? That's, um, it's like reaching for the things behind right. the, like yeah. the kind of platonic forms. Right. Um, right. And so Ellis and I talked a lot about like good, how good art does that. Yep. Um, and that's a necessary part of um, good art. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we kind of moved into talking about heroes okay. as we were just discussing yeah. like, uh, no, no shots at Ellis, but no. he, he hadn't uh, seen like someone breaking bad, yeah. some of, uh, Harry Potter, like right. some of these things. Okay. Um, so I'll share kind of what we were talking about yeah, and then maybe should. you can give your input. Yeah, go for it. Um, so we were talking about like what makes a good hero. Yeah. Um, and I was contrasting a lot of the modern superheroes with some characters like, um, Frodo, Harry Potter, okay. um, and then Walter White came in another way. But yeah. I was saying that a lot of what you see with the classical heroes is the hero's journey, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this person who's like divinely gifted in some way. Yeah. And their story is about their like wrestle with that power yes. you and learning to use it, but then often being overcome by it. Correct. So they're actually like corrupted by the power. Yeah. The modern superhero movies are about a lot of times not divinely gifted. Either they are, they have some innate quality, like they're yeah. a scientist yeah, and they yeah. experiment with <laughs> what got them. Yeah. Or they're a god themselves. Yeah. True. And the, that's where their power comes from. Mm. And their arc is about learning to control the power. Mm. It's not about their wrestle with the power. Okay. Um, which, you know, there's nuance there. Yeah. But, um, and so I was talking about like, Frodo uh, and Harry Potter in particular mm-hmm. as good examples of like characters who have to give up their power in order to to win to essentially win, yeah, and right. and to kind of save the day. Yeah, right. Um, and we, yeah, we we were kind of thinking about that in contrast to like the modern heroes and like even have you seen Invincible? I have. I okay. Really so things like Invincible, mm-hmm. um, Breaking Bad, um, and I, I'm assuming the boys. It's like they're they're blurring the lines between the superhero and the villain. Yes. Um, and I I don't know. I I think the question is like, what does that say about um, who we see as heroes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how is that different from kind of like those classical heroes yeah. or even like Frodo and Harry right. Potter? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think I'm going to start by actually talking about nausea first. Okay. I think that'll like be a nice segue into the actual okay. part itself. So <clears throat> obviously Ethan, you know, he led the session on, on nausea. So he's, we, we, you know, he and I have been talking about it okay. like yeah. a lot together. And um, Ethan really, really resonated with um, Rokendon, just like okay. really thought he was like a good character, and it's a he thinks it's a really good narrative. I mean, I agree. I really enjoyed the book as well. Mm-hmm. I think I think the the most interesting thing about Rokendon is 
you know, he it's that that song for him that like helps him see the things behind, you know, yeah. like those platonic forms and whatnot. And instead of it inspiring as like Plato imagined, it inspiring like goodness and virtue, it his the fact that he can like kind of start to see them and he can't attain them like causes him like depression mm-hmm. and like this great sense of like dread and meaninglessness. Uh-huh. Which is a really interesting like reversal of how we normally view people who see like some kind of cosmic power. Higher, yeah, yeah, yeah. They tend to be inspired to greatness, which he does at the end when he's like, I'm gonna write a book and like show mm-hmm. everyone what they can do, right? And you I mean you had a very optimistic take on yeah. like that, right? Which yeah. I mean I appreciate because I kind of was buying into the, a more cynical viewpoint of that of the ending. So I think though that Rokenton is an interesting hero because when that book came out in like what nineteen thirty two, this was post stock market crash. Mm. So there's an ex, there's a, there's a, a quick uptick in poverty and like mm. uncertainty, and so it's an interesting take on the hero at that time because it would have been an attempt to kind of make sense of a world where like so many things seem to be going wrong. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I try to think about it like I, I try to keep the context, especially in in art, like the context of the time. I think is really important. Right. And so, and I think it's a great question kind of asking, like, what does it say about, you know, us when our heroes have changed so much from mm-hmm. how they used to, how they used to look. And so I think a really good example of like a Rokenton-esque hero is Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. Okay. And that, that's a, that's a Western from, I think the eighties maybe it's with a, with a more elderly Clint Eastwood, but it's a really, really interesting film because for the first time, the Western didn't have like a clear-cut hero and a clear-cut villain. Okay. So you have Clint Eastwood's character. I, I forget his name. It's been a little while since I've seen the movie, but he's like a retired hitman essentially, mm-hmm. and he has had a wife who ends up dying of like smallpox or malaria. So he's like kind of jaded, and he he yeah. really thinks like ill of the world. Right. And but he like represents everything that is lawless about the West. Okay. But he's our hero. Mm. He's our Walter White. Yeah, and so this also came at a time like post Vietnam, right? Which was kind of America's shift in heroism uh-huh. and what we value to taking on a more like we wanted characters more like Rokenton, who mm. have a very jaded view of the world, kind of are like they kind of are like pulled back from the rest of society, you know, like they live on the outskirts, whether that's mental or physically living on the outskirts. Right. You know, like Taxi Driver was a huge hit because right. uh, Travis Bickle is like. The ultimate loner, like yeah. awful, like yes. just yeah, depressed character. So yeah, so just but so unforgiving is a really good example in my mind of kind of raising that question of like, do we even have a hero? Like, is that even possible? Right. Because the one of like the villains, he's more of an antagonist, is Gene Hackman's character, who's actually the sheriff. Mm. And so, but he just rules with like an iron hand. So like, someone is caught stealing or cheating at cards or something, so he whips them. Mm-hmm. But he's the sheriff, so like. He's stooping to these very barbaric levels uh-huh. inside of his town, which is just very, it's very like, is that justice? What do we think of justice? Yeah. You know, a lot of people thought America was very unjust. Like that was kind of a big shift in um, um, the public's viewpoint of America was like that we thought we were just in everything that we did. Yeah. But post Vietnam, <clears throat> we found ourselves like, what did we just do? We dragged ourselves into this like awful war. And know that by the end nobody really wanted to be a part of it. Right. Right. And we also had no respect for what in World War II we called our heroes. Mm-hmm. We sold we sold war bonds. Yeah. And we respected our veterans when they came home, right? Yeah. We, we wanted to like care for them and show them like that our gratitude. At post-Vietnam, veterans got no respect. Yeah. Interesting. And they were viewed a lot as like kind of like 
uh, they were either viewed in, in one of two ways. They were viewed as like murderers uh-huh. and kind of this like totalitarian viewpoint of like a right way, which right. no one agrees on what the right way is. Right. And then they were also viewed in another sense, which is like this these exploited youths of a system that's been long okay. broken. Okay, yeah. Right? Because of the draft and how so, so many people went to the war right. for absolutely no reason. Right. And so the war quickly turned from like this pro- American way, pro like anti communism, mm-hmm. when John F. Kennedy was first kind of considering the war. Uh-huh. But then when Lyndon B. Johnson took over, it became all of everyone started was like, no, this is more about foreign policy and it's like a yeah. way to protect America from afar. And so I think that was a huge shift because you can, if you watch movies and, and, and look at even like famous photographs of the time, they're all very dark. They tend uh-huh. to be very like just cynical of. of how we view humanity yeah and so i think that that was like you know and jimmy carter took over right after nixon or right after ford and just was like it was just a terrible time like he Mm. he was he was trying to fight inflation and he was doing it in all the wrong ways so we (laughs) saw like just like no economic growth high inflation you know so that's why ronald Reagan was the darling boy because he was like the actor he saved the day right he wasn't like a traditional politician and so, you know, you, you see this huge shift in how Hollywood and a lot of movies, like there's a lot of really good movies from that time period from Russia, actually. Hmm. Um, this guy named uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, like mm-hmm. you have to check out his movies. Um, he has a movie called Stalker, okay. which is about a man who can guide people to a room where their dreams come true huh. in that room. And so it's he, he kind of has that like old style hero's journey where he has this power that he doesn't really know where it came from. But his wrestling with the power is he's more of a vessel for other people to experience uh-huh. it, right? He's not, like, imposing it on anybody else because right. he can't make their dreams come true. It's right. this room that he knows about. So it's these really interesting takes on, like, you have the so-called, like, villain of the world, which is in the USSR, making movies that are actually asking these great questions about, like, goodness and res- personal responsibility, <clears throat> which is, like, totally the, the, the opposite view of communism, right? Which is, like, yeah. what do you do for the proletariat? And then in America, it's the exact opposite. It's the individual is actually this corrupt thing. Uh-huh. Nobody's truly good, right? Because you have to turn to Clint Eastwood to save the day, not Gene Hackman, the sheriff. Yeah. Because the whole plot of that movie is, is like, uh, I believe it's a, a mother. Uh, her family's like murdered or something. I forget the inciting incident, but essentially she hires Clint Eastwood to like exact revenge for her because yeah. Gene Hackman won't do it. Because the crime didn't take place inside of his town. Okay. So yeah, so it's like That's as far as I remember, so it's really interesting. So like the law, the law and just justice of the land won't be the law and justice of the land in Gene Hackman. So right. she turns to this like morally corrupt character to enact that for her. Yeah. Um, and so that's one. That's like a really interesting take, though, because that tries to de- that has like a positive light, which I think will segue well into my thoughts on Walter White, right? Because <laughs> The Clint Eastwood character is like, they think he has redemption. So like, there's all these little moments where mm-hmm. he's kind of like, slowly changing for the better, and it's like becomes less about the money and more about like doing something right with his life for once. Right. And so that's a really interesting take on like the antihero approach, right? You can you can be lawless, but you can habituate yourself exactly. into becoming the hero. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's kind of like it, it kind of started that whole trend which we see in Hollywood today, like. Your past doesn't matter. It's more like what you choose to do right now in this moment, right. which is kind of true. Yeah. But there has to be a both and in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. Like you, you need to respect that someone's past might be pretty crap, <laughs> <laughs> but they do have the potentiality for goodness. So yeah. 
I, but yeah, so I think the difference though is like Walter White is kind of the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. And like he starts this like kind of like happy-go-lucky, bit of a wimp, but like a happy-go-lucky guy who's just like trying to teach chemistry in high right. school. And he's clearly brilliant. Yeah. But like I recently rewatched the show, so mm-hmm. it's fresh in my mind. Like you see even from the from the get-go, like when you rewatch the show, how jaded Walter White already is with his life. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, there's all these little moments where he's teaching chemistry and like a student will kind of like not be paying attention. Yes. Yeah. And he doesn't understand how to impart his love of chemistry like onto his students. Right. So that he feels like a failure in that. Yeah. He whenever he watches the news about gray matter, he feels like a failure in that. Yeah. And so he feels this great sense of like he is a failure, right? And he doesn't have any power. He doesn't yeah. have that divine ability to be. Which is even though he has the knowledge. Exactly. So like he was involved in gray matter exactly. and he has the chemistry knowledge. Yes, exactly. But for some reason doesn't like that doesn't resonate as power to him. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what's interesting as well is most intellectual heroes in like a in like an artsy fartsy movie where uh-huh. like the hero is brilliant in something or yeah. or is like enlightened in some way. A lot of the plot is them recognizing like the gift that they have in their knowledge. Um, like what's the Matt Damon um, Boston? Oh yeah, yeah. Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The whole movie is about him having this incredible knowledge. He knows he's really smart. Right. And he just has to take responsibility of his exactly. Impulse. Exactly. Yeah. While Walter White knows he's really smart, but he views it more as like a part of his failure, mm. is because he ha- he almost starts with this sense of like responsibility. You could say that's in air quotes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know if he necessarily feels responsibility, but he knows he's really brilliant. Yeah, and he knows he could have contributed to gray matter like, yeah. immensely. And you know we don't know why he left, but it's alluded he may have had an affair with that with the woman, okay. or the wife. I didn't. Of, I... It's been a while. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, like, it, it's, there's a little bit of an illusion that, like, he was in love with her. Okay. So he may have left over, like, jealousy. Gotcha. But then there's other illusions that, like, he may have done something pretty, like, morally unethical. Okay. Which I think is a more popular theory just okay. because of how morally unethical it yeah, becomes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, they think that maybe they kicked him out to avoid scandal or something like that. But anyways, so, yeah, I think Walter White's brilliant because of how awful he is Mm -hmm. so you see him start with like this knowledge and like he's so well equipped to be successful and he hasn't been Mm -hmm. and so that instead of him taking that responsibility for he's taking responsibility for his knowledge Mm -hmm. he's like i know i'm really smart Mm -hmm. nobody really recognizes how smart i am but i know i'm really smart and really capable like hank doesn't appreciate this right but i'm super smart or he thinks hank doesn't appreciate it but then when, you know, he gets cancer and they want him to take time off and he's worried about money and all this stuff, he then actually starts turning his responsibility. What he says is like, I want to provide for my family. He actually is just blaming everything around him for his issues, right? Interesting. Somebody else, it's somebody else's fault he's not at Grey Matter, at Grey Matter anymore, right? It's, it's somebody else's fault that, um, you know, he can't pay for cancer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's somebody else's fault that uh, his wife and kid don't respect him. It's, hey, yeah, it's, it's my brother-in-law, Hank, who's mm-hmm. like constantly usurping my authority as a dad. Mm-hmm. And which is like not necessarily true. It's just when, when you don't speak up ever to your son who's looking for guidance, right. you're going to go looking for guidance somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think that's like a really interesting take is, is Walter White habituates himself out of goodness. Yes. While Clint Eastwood habituates himself into goodness. Yeah. And into responsibility. Yeah. So we, Ellis and I were, when we were thinking about Breaking Bad, we were thinking about it as, as taking what he's saying at face value. So saying he actually has good intentions, mm. 
but then he habituates himself out of those. Oh, okay. And so it's actually like a perverted. Yeah. But I can see that maybe that's a cover up for what, like kind of a latent um, lack of ethics that's already right. in him. Yeah, I think I think what it is, is I, because I, I, I interpreted the show that way the first time I watched it. Okay. And so the first time I watched the show, I was I really hated actually seasons four and five because I felt like all the good character work they'd done showing Walter White habituating himself out of goodness went to waste when like his whole war with Gus Fring starts and then his war with like the, the neo-Nazis and all mm-hmm. that stuff like starts kicking into gear. I'm like, oh, now there's all these like boring external factors yeah. that are like forcing him to do these bad things. But right. it was really interesting watching his corruption. But when I recently rewatched the show, I almost kind of like thought my way out of that way of thinking okay. because I, when I recently rewatched it, you see from the very beginning, Walter White is like, he lies to his wife a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? He's working that second job at the car wash. Or, yeah. or he'll like skip work or like yeah. slack off. But he says to his wife, oh, my, my boss is such an asshole. Yeah. But it's like, well, he, your boss is kind of a jerk. But like you also haven't really earned his respect as an employee <laughs> either. So yeah. there's a lot of like really interesting, just, like subtle moments that Vince Gilligan, the writer slash showrunner, is like so good at like keying in on. Mm-hmm. So like there's that moment when, um, you know, he lets Jesse's girlfriend die. Yeah. Yeah. And Walter, and the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, Walter, you know, like, that was a really crappy thing to do. But, you know, you're kind of filled with indecision. And, yeah. and you know, you and Jesse were fighting. Like, I can kind of get it. But when you rewatch it, it's like, Walter was hoping that would happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, from the very get-go, he wanted this woman out of the picture. Yeah. And that's because Jesse's one of the few things in his life where he truly feels like he's in control. Yes. At all times. Yes. And when you are in a habit of evil, which is just the absence of order and good, right? Mm. You don't feel like you have any control. Yeah. And so it's almost like that little, because I believe that Walter is like more than just some evil guy who is waiting for the chance to be evil. I think he's much more complex than that. Right. Uh, But I just, I I think he's got a really interesting take on, like it's such an interesting take on what we view a hero. Yeah. Because the more you rewatch the show, the more you realize this guy has no heroic qualities whatsoever. Which I, I tend to think of it, so... I like thinking of it more as of, you know, the, the genre now that's like we had our superhero origin stories and then we get villain origin mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. I, t- I like to think of it as like kind of the prototypical villain mm. origin story. Yeah. Um, and I like, I like to contrast it to like the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Because in that movie, there's almost the sense that like there was a, evil that was inside of him Mm -hmm. and his circumstances forced him to become who he was yeah Yeah, he almost had no choice yeah right it was about who he was and where he was in in society you know abusive mom and yeah all the all this stuff mental health exactly exactly but that's juxtaposed with walter white who in the first three seasons Mm -hmm. like you're saying like has opportunities to choose yes so you have the question when it comes to a villain of mm-hmm. is it the um like environment that shapes the person mm-hmm. into a villain yeah, yeah, or yeah. do they habituate themselves to become yeah. evil yeah um so i mean m- maybe i'm wrong in like grouping that in the no, villain no, category I don't think that's wrong at all yeah no. no i i really like that take yeah i think i think it really comes down to like it's hard it, it's a little hard to to like take a movie 
versus a TV show. True. Because maybe if the Joker got a TV show, he'd be more like a Walter White. True. You know, because maybe more time see, to yeah, develop. more time yeah. to develop him. But I think that's those are really good contrasts, though, because everyone was like lauding the Joker as like the perfect villain origin story. Mm-hmm. When I oh, I tend to more agree with you, where it is more like it's based. The entire argument is just your experiences and your environment shape who you become. Yeah. And you don't really have an option. Yeah. Which is a very postmodernist view yeah. of an individual. You're a product of a system. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Walter White is a really interesting take because he thinks he's the product of a system. Right. Right? But you as the viewer know that he had a choice. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting because you on the outside looking in are like, wow, this here this so-called hero in Walter White thinks I didn't have a choice. Like Gus was gonna kill my whole family, right? Yeah. Or like I didn't have a choice. Like Jesse needs to help me make money to like provide for my family, so like, yeah. I had to let the girlfriend die. Like you yeah. don't get it. And he says that like those are his arguments even to Jesse. He's like mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice. I'm sorry, but you kind of know you actually did have a choice. You it's either he didn't want to accept that he had a choice, which is a really interesting idea for a character who like mm-hmm. won't accept that they have options, mm-hmm. or he. A more diabolical version is he does know he has a choice and he just always chooses yes. the wrong one or right. the evil one. Because right. it's, I mean, because it is easier to be evil. Yes. It's, yeah, like it's it's easiest for Walter White to not do good. Mm-hmm. Especially because when you're in the meth business, you probably don't really have <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like it's, it like he could have tried to make it work with Gus, but he never did. Yeah. And, his whole relationship with Gus was built on manipulation and mm-hmm. lying and evil attributes just in general. Even within the structure of like a crime business, mm-hmm. he can't operate in the like in that structure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's so fascinating because like Mike is a great character because he's technically in like an evil business. Uh-huh. But his choices aren't personal and they're not evil. Yes. Right? Like, he is he is helping perpetuate, like, drugs and whatever. But like, and violence. And violence. <laughs> and he does commit acts of violence. But when he yeah. commits acts of violence, it's either in retaliation for violence, uh-huh. right? Which and, Like, just... So yeah, which is a form of justice, right? right? And, and retribution. And also, like, that's the natural order of that world. It's like, yeah. tit for tat, right? Yeah. But And then he also has, like, principles. He's like, mm-hmm. okay, Gus Fring has, has, in our microcosm of crime has given a hierarchy. Yeah. And Walter is constantly trying to subvert that hierarchy. Yes. Right? And so it's really, really interesting because you see how a sniveling weasel like Walter makes it so far in a business like that because he has no principles. Interesting. Yeah, like he it's so it's so fascinating how how characters like Walter White always last the longest because they aren't afraid to, to do the nastiest thing. Huh. And like Gus Fring he was unwilling to kill uh, Hector Salamanca mm-hmm. because he that that was him being that was his little weasel part, yeah. right? Living through him because he was angry about his friend's murder, right? And so that's why he wants Salamanca like kept alive so he could basically torment him, mm-hmm. right? And do like the nastiest thing you can think of, which is right. like, mentally torment, which eventually leads to someone like Walter being able to exploit the one chink in his armor, which is, he, you know, because normally Gus Fring is like, you kill the people that wronged you, and, like, they're out yeah. of the picture. Right. You don't have to deal with them anymore. 
But he always kept Hector Salomon around because that was the one aspect of him that he couldn't let go was that mm-hmm. need for revenge. Yeah. So it's really it's really fascinating. And, and that's the thing that gets him killed. And that's the thing that gets him killed. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So interesting. It's really really interesting. And like and then I think in the fifth season, you know, they they bring in those like neo Nazi guys yeah. or whatever. And they're like pretty boring generic yeah. films. But even they are fascinating because their whole ideology, if you think about neo-fascism, uh-huh. is about you create a microcosm of a Nazi-like regime, uh-huh. like a Hitler-esque regime. Right? Uh-huh. You have this erratic leader at the top in Jack, and then you have his cold, calculated sidekick in his nephew Todd, mm-hmm. who's like, you know, maybe we shouldn't kill these guys. We should keep like Jesse alive to cook for us. Mm-hmm. Right? But Jack was ready to just wipe them all out yeah so it's even interesting how they even are able to capture like a grand government like scale and like cram it into that little season it's really yeah. interesting yeah i'm i'm thinking about um mike and um kind of like the sh- structured evil kind mm-hmm. of or yeah. structured violence yeah and i'm thinking of the batman mm. like how those relate and and kind of how the Batman like of all the DC superheroes and like particularly Superman who's this like kind of all good like won't kill like really ordered and good Mm -hmm. superhero completely lost traction yeah so like in the you know probably 50s I don't know when Superman was created but he was he came out in uh I believe in the 40s Right, but he was getting his butt kicked by Shazam, actually. Oh, and so okay. and so Shazam was a huge character back in the thirties and forties, yeah. and then um, DC sued the much smaller company, Fawcett Comics, who created uh-huh. Shazam. He's called Captain Marvel back then, for like basically ripping off Superman. Okay, because Superman had, I think, that like versions of Superman had come out in the thirties. Okay, um, and maybe in the early forties. But you know, Captain Mar- this Captain Mar- the DC but now the DC version is called Shazam. Right. I can just call him Shazam, but like so they basically didn't really know what they were doing with Superman for a while. Okay. So in the fifties he really took off as like the all American boy. Right. And yeah. the the picture perfect kind of product of his time. Yeah. Like completely ordered and good. Yes. But now Batman has taken over mm-hmm. and kind of represents that blurred line between yep. like um yeah, superhero and villain, mm-hmm. and like the the reason why the only reason why he's a superhero is that there's some sense of like order and justice, yeah. but he does all the same things that yeah. the, that the <laughs> right. bad guys do. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe like a question to kind of help direct would be like, yeah. why does why does cynicism with the ability of the hero mm-hmm. result in turning the villain into a hero or the hero into the villain you know what i mean yeah yeah that's a really good like it's not like we're no one's proposing like a better superman it's kind of like oh no superman wasn't good enough right why is this other thing Mm. the solution yeah yeah i think well i think i think one thing to remember and mike is a good contrast to batman Mm -hmm. because batman does not kill right that's like his whole thing. Right. Like, I'll beat you up, I'll paralyze you, but I won't kill you. Right. Uh, which a lot of heroes actually like bring up to him as like a, as a problem in his ethos because mm-hmm. he allows the Joker to yeah. like break out of Arkham Asylum time and time again and like yeah. wreak havoc on humanity. 
And so I think what's actually interesting is maybe I'll push back a little bit on, on Batman as an example of cynicism. It's like I don't think that Batman – I think Batman is actually an optimist, hmm. right? Because he, he thinks that like people can't – he's hoping that they'll somehow be rehabilitated. Yeah. He does, the problem with him though is he doesn't offer any solutions to rehabilitate them. He just leaves that up to somebody else. But he's kind of like – he's unwilling to kill because, one, he doesn't think he should be a murderer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like, And I also think he says a couple times, like, that would make him give in to his rage and, like, his revenge. Like, uh, that – almost like that make – that's the only line between yeah. him and the villains. Exactly. And as soon as he crosses that, yeah, it's – Yeah, he can't cross that. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's another big, like – I mean, that's why there, there's that graphic novel, The Killing Joke, which is essentially mm-hmm. where the Joker tries to make Batman like yeah. cross that line. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think I think Batman might be a little bit more optimistic than, like, uh, I, don't, I don't... Than Mike. Like, yeah, than Mike. Yeah, we'll yeah. say than Mike, yeah. Because Mike is very much, like, a, he's a cynic. Right. Right? He does not trust anybody. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think cynicism has a really interesting... Like hold on the mind, like, and I, I tend to struggle with cynicism, okay. so yeah. I can speak for right. yeah, yeah. I tend to be more cynical in yeah. general. And so, like, one thing I, I personally have to fight a lot is like, you tend to have, um, and I guess I would be someone since I like adhere to like Christian morals and mm-hmm. whatnot. I guess I would be an example of like a Walter White almost, where it's like a good person turned evil, mm-hmm. or, or I guess would, would turns, you say that turned cynical? Is that turns, what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, well, because you, your question was what it was. It was how why does cynicism cause a good person to turn? Yeah, evil? Or, or from a from a societal standpoint, like why does cynicism with the heroes that we had f- cause us to create heroes that are blurred? In their, I see. I see. Yeah, so you're saying our our cynicism of like a Superman? Yes. Causes us to like Batman. Yes. Okay. 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 That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I think. Okay, so for me, right? Mm-hmm. I don't really like Superman. Right, me neither. Yeah, I think he's really boring. Yeah, and I don't. I tend to kind of buck against like the traditional hero's journey. Like, okay. I find Luke Skywalker, who like Star Wars, is the perfect example of the hero's journey. Yeah, like, it's like to a beat. It's just like perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like <laughs> it's like you give it to like a sixth grader, they and you will, give them yes. the template, yes. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, check, yeah, check, you can check off every single mark. And like, it's it's amazing. It's <laughs> right. honestly pretty brilliant. Like, I, I have to respect. It. I'm no I'm no Star Wars nerd. I do like Star Wars, but like, it's so impressive how like perfectly captured like, <laughs> Luke Skywalker is in the hero's journey. Yeah. So like, yeah, I think I also tend to like dislike characters like Luke Skywalker. I'm mm-hmm. drawn more to like a Han Solo. Right? Yeah. Kind of like that renegade guy. Yeah. And I think what it is though is like I, I almost see it as a mirror of like my own life. Like yeah. and, and I, I'm a little ashamed to say this, but like in my own more cynical you know, thought process, I have to fight really hard to like give people like the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So like let's say someone is like really just like naturally kind. Mm-hmm. Or if someone's like really just like selfless, right? Yeah. I, like, tend, an I said, yeah, I said, you, you, I don't believe that you're just this nice. Right. I refuse to believe that because right. it feels disingenuous. It feels right. not possible to me. And so I think that's like, I really like hate Superman because in my opinion, I'd be like, no, I know myself. If I had like insane near indestructible powers, I would be the biggest 
asshole like the world has ever seen. Right. It's like, I know you haven't seen The Boys, but like that's literally Eric Kripke's whole like message. It's like Homelander uh-huh. has the super speed. He has this, the flight. He has the super strength, the laser eyes. And Homelander is the biggest, most corrupt, like disgusting, vile piece mm-hmm. of flesh you've ever seen roaming the earth. Mm-hmm. Because Eric Kripke's basically saying, Exactly. He's trying to answer that exact question that you're saying. He's like, okay, I know that we are all cynical about superheroes. So I'm just going to lay bare all the, the stuff that would, like, why we are cynical of them. Right. And so each character embodies, like, you know, like, lust or envy okay. or, or something like that, right? So, like, or wrath, you mm-hmm. know? And, and even the heroes exemplify a lot of those yeah. problems as well. And so I, I think what's, what's, like, the reason why we get to a place where... I love the boys more than any other superhero thing ever come out is because the boys lays bare what we all cynically wish those people were because then they're as bad as us or even like if you were to have that power this is what you would become right exactly there's you it's unavoidable right exactly and that is an interesting thing though because I think the one thing the boys does that I wish they didn't do as much uh-huh. is they, they are constantly teasing this like you're just a product of your environment. Right. So like where we stand with the boys right now is like Homelander it's been revealed was like made in like a petri dish essentially. So like he doesn't have parents. Okay. And you're like okay that's too bad. But then <laughs> it, it's also or at least the, but now it's kind of being alluded to in the latest season that he might actually have parents. Mm-hmm. So then you're like oh wait so if he'd just been given like a loving family would he still be this like jerk yeah. right? or was it just because he's genetically like engineered in a lab is that why he's so evil and corrupt right right and he was raised by a scientist who left him in a padded room so like that would mess any child up so it's 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 this constant teasing like well it's, is he a product of his experience like yeah. probably but we're never going to tell you for sure because we are still writing the show. Right. And so what bothers me about that is like I wish they would ask that other question of like, well, what about Homelander's personal choices has brought him? Okay. You know, like because yeah. I because partially because I want my cynicism to be valid. <laughs> yeah. Because because if if everyone is a byproduct of their system and their uh-huh. environment, that you can't actually be cynical about anybody. Yeah. Right. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yes. And I think that's I think that's the problem is we don't want to give people the benefit of the doubt uh-huh. because then we have to admit that somebody else might just be a little bit better than us hmm. they might just be a little bit more kind than we are right right so like i tend to feel like i not necessarily insecure but i tend to feel kind of like bummed out that this other person is genuinely just a nice kind person <laughs> and i'm not that. So like i can't yeah, i can't like, do that i can't do that and it's it's partially because I've habituated a thought process of cynicism in myself. Yes. So it's something that I'm even trying to fight. Right. You know, I'm trying to habituate, like, I've been practicing it all semester, and it's been really helpful. Like, just, like, when I meet somebody I don't really know, and they do, a kind, like, a kind act, right? I just am like, wow, thanks. That was really nice. And I just tell myself that over and over until I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, and it's helped me be, like, kinder to others. Right. Right? And is it, like, a really, like, <clears throat> deep-seated, genuine kindness? Who knows? Well, that's but, that's a part of the yeah. point of habituation. Right. It's like it doesn't have to it be. It doesn't have to be. Exactly. <laughs> You'll get there. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so I I agree with you, and I think you're right. There's like something about like we don't see these like perfect characters as like relatable, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think I really do think part of it is like if I had that power, that's not. I, that's not who I would be. Like, right. this is too perfect. Right. Um, 
So I want to I want to bring in Lord of the Rings because yeah. I've been thinking about Frodo as a really interesting character, um, and I'll, like trying to kind of fit him into that hero archetype, yeah. right? He's the humblest character, so or, or like it as a hobbit, as a hobbit. he's the humblest race, yeah, right? Right, right. So you right, could yeah. maybe argue like Mary or Pippin, yeah, like, yeah, but hobbit. he's tasked with the greatest power in the mm-hmm. world, right. or one of the greatest powers. Mm-hmm. Because he's one of the humblest, like creatures, um, mm-hmm. so like you know, Boromir wants to take the power and use it. Right. Um, Galadriel in the it is like you know tempted, um, yeah. like she could become a god yeah. nearly, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the Hobbit is given it because he's kind of like resistant to the power. Yeah. Um, because of his humility. Yeah. So you take the most humble character, he makes it all the way to the end, mm-hmm. and he still can't do it. Yeah. So there's actually an innate cynicism in Lord of the Rings, yeah. which says even the best person for this job, yeah. even the humblest person, yeah. isn't able to give up the power. Right. Um, and so there's like, I just didn't really think about. The, the cynicism in Lord of the Rings because <laughs> like, it, it's such it's an idealistic book. It is, yeah. Um, but Frodo's such a good character yeah. because he's a hero through and through, mm-hmm. but he can't do it at the end. Oh. Um, yeah. And it's actually Gollum, the evil, that yeah. comes and bites his, like, he loses his finger right. to evil yeah. in order to, like, for evil to mm-hmm. die. Yeah, he's even, like, physically maimed. Yes. Like, how he's slowly being maimed the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, internal. Wow. I didn't even think about how cynical that is, but that's really sad. Yeah. yeah. But but it's simultaneously like cynical, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a response to Superman right. saying like this isn't the hero. The yeah. person with the most power isn't the hero. Right. Um Aragorn can't be the hero. Yeah. Faramir is like in the movie he gets tempted by the ring, but I like him better in the book. Yeah, he's like, too. I'm not going near it. Yeah, right. I'm not touching that yeah. thing. I know what it'll do to me. Yeah. So he's a great character. He's a great character. He's a huge part of the book as well. Yes. Which I was kind of bummed they didn't use him as much in the movies. Agreed. But he's a great character. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but essentially it's like, it's cynical because it's saying Superman is a, can't be the hero. Mm-hmm. He will be corrupted by the power. Right. So we'll give it to the humblest person. Mm. Even then, the power is too much. Yeah, yeah I think... I gotta sit with that for a little bit, but uh, I'll be thinking about that for a while. But I think I think I can. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about about Lord of the Rings though is, um, if you remember in the book, Frodo, um, is given the ring by Gandalf, and then he moves out of the Shire to the Brandywine uh-huh. Forest, right? Yeah. Uh, where or like the old forest where he lives in that little cottage. Mm-hmm. Um. In Buckland, and he lives there for like a full year, and he mm-hmm. doesn't depart on the journey, right? So he even sits with the power for a while, interesting, which is really interesting. Yeah, and and it doesn't start like taking hold of him until they leave Rivendell. Is really when it becomes like more of a, a of temptation. A yeah, like that's when you start seeing like attempting him a lot more constantly, right? Interesting. Um, and that is partially because he he doesn't um touch it when he's in Buckland. Yes. In the book, you know, he just leaves it in that envelope, kind of sitting in that chest. Yeah. But what's really fascinating is um, there's that part when you meet Tom Bombadil, 
Yeah. And he gives Tom Bombadil the ring, and Tom puts it on, and he doesn't disappear. Interesting. And Tom's yeah, just yeah. like, oh, this is just like a silly old ring, right? And he just takes it off and gives it back to him. I forgot about yeah. that. And so Tom is, is like the complete opposite of kind of the whole crux of that like cynical nature of the book that you're saying. Yes. Because he is... Completely untouched. Yeah, he's completely untouched. He's completely unfazed. He even is able to put it on, and it won't even make him disappear, which is what it does to everyone else. Yeah. Right? So, like, first, that sets off, you know, Tom is one of the oldest powers in Middle-earth. Right. Right? So he's just very old. But also, I think it's a really good take on Tom. Even Tom's approach to the ring is it's almost like a joke. Uh-huh. And I think of that, that there's that famous, like, Taika Waititi quote when, when people were asking him, like, Oh, did you fear backlash for Jojo Rabbit um, for having Hitler be like the best friend of your main character? And Taika is a Polynesian Jew. Uh-huh. And so obviously that story would be near to his heart. Of course. And so he said that uh, in his mind, the greatest thing you can do to great evil is to reduce it to a giggle. Huh. Right? To, to kind of laugh at it. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the weight of the ring is not only in its physical power, because obviously it's corrupting and very evil. But it's also in its like mental, like the scope it's taken in its uh-huh. mental ability is like be almost beyond what it actually provides to the wearer. Right. Because a lot of times, like when um, Frodo puts it on, it doesn't like give him superpowers or anything. He right. Just turns invisible. You know, and he yeah. kind of becomes like connected to Sauron a little bit. Yeah. Like, and it be- it becomes more apparent as they get closer to Mordor. But like, right. when he like puts it on in the in the sign of the at the sign of the prancing pony. Right, the Prince of Pony, he like all he does is turn invisible, uh-huh. and it, then like and like the Nazgul's can sense him and stuff, but it's not like some crazy superpower, right? Which which they do say so. Like the idea is that the power of the ring grows with the user. So the only okay. part part of the reason why it's given to okay, him I about that. is yeah. because it's only so powerful in the hands of a hobbit. hobbit. Right. Um, okay, that makes sense. But yeah. really interesting, yeah. in, when you have Tom Bombadil. Right. Who's like arguably the most powerful character in yeah, the book? Right. And like part of his power is that the power isn't a temptation. Mm-hmm. So like he is so strong and like wise yeah. that he, like for most characters in the book, everyone but Tom really. The more powerful you are, the more tempting the ring is. Exactly. But then you cross this threshold, and then all of a sudden, Tom's just like, why would I want this? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it's almost like... It's like Tom is supposed to be um, kind of this example of, like, someone who's at the end of their hero's journey. Right? And we don't get to see whatever Tom's hero's journey is, right? There's there's a really long poem about Tom Bombadil that Gerald Tolkien wrote. I haven't read it. I read it. It really doesn't help you answer anything. (laughs) It's just kind of like, okay, I guess that's cool, but like, it doesn't really help explain anything about like why he's so wise and so virtuous. Uh It's almost like he is innately that. Yes. Which he probably is for a plot device. Right. Because he is a plot device. But Tom Bombadil is like, yeah, he, he, he's so far, like, ahead of everybody else in yeah. terms of, like, power set and, like, just mental wisdom and virtue and, and everything, right? So, like, when you become so virtuous that when that power isn't a temptation anymore, then it's just a ring. Yes. So maybe that's why it doesn't, and I, I, like, tempt him at all. Yeah. You know? I think the question 
that I would have that I don't know if it's answerable yeah. based on what Tolkien gives us is like what is the source of Bombadil's power mm-hmm. because if he's just so powerful that this ring is like oh well whatever yeah. then that's kind of like lame. It's, it's, not yeah, it's not as exciting but if if his power is in his virtue mm-hmm. and you see that like really his power resides in being able to reject power right it's like yeah. that's a that's a really interesting yeah. um idea yeah um and it's it that's what places him above everybody else yeah. Um, yeah, and it's also like, and, and that's the, that's so interesting because Tom Bombadil is he's like really virtuous and really wise, and he isn't innocent, right? Huh. But like a lot of the Hobbit characters are super innocent, and like that's why they're really interested yeah. in the Hobbits. Like Gandalf's so interested in the Hobbits because like Merry and Pippin when they first start out are so innocent, mm-hmm. and that's more played into in the movie than in the book. But like you know, and then but then it's interesting that Frodo gets the ring. Because the Bagginses are considered like the least innocent of all yes. the hobbits. Yeah. Right? They have kind of this wanderlust that nobody really like respects. They think they're kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, which is so interesting that like I, I really I don't know if it's answerable, but like my question as well, kind of off the Tom Bombadil question is like, why does why do the Baggins always end up with the ring when they are clearly like huh. they clearly have like a, a greater potential for power than like a Mary interesting because if the power grows with the user I would just give that to Pippin <laughs> um, but you per, know maybe there's also like Frodo volunteers to take the ring that is true he does volunteer. so there you don't um, if you don't want power you can completely avoid it mm, true. right like so Mary and Pippin like all they want is just to have some beers and yeah. hang out with friends. friends yeah, right. And so they would turn down. They're, yeah, that's true. Um, they're, they're kind of the extent of how far, you kind of see how far a character will go in right. the book. So like the Mary and Pippin, like, of course they'll help Frodo. Yeah. But would they carry the ring? I don't know. Yeah. Probably not. Right. So there's so like the Baggins have this character mm-hmm. trait that like yeah. they're, they're humble, but then they're willing to, to yeah. take it on. Yeah, I also wonder if, like, I mean, I mean, Frodo's, like, a pretty contemplative character, too. So I almost wonder if that, like, that Spider-Man, like, with great power comes great responsibility, but it's more, like, with great, like, knowledge or understanding comes, like, a sense of responsibility. Because, uh-huh. like, Frodo kind of, like, knows about the ring at this point. Yeah. And the Mary Pippin don't. And so he feels his obligation to take it as well. Yeah. And, and I think, like, that's also fascinating because Sam... Gains more and more knowledge about the ring as they continue, not because he knows about Sauron, but because he sees what it's doing to Frodo. Uh-huh. Right? It's like that helps him try to support, that causes him to want to support Frodo even more. Yeah. Right? So, like, he'll follow him into Mordor and, like, literally to the end of the earth. Right. Right? Which Mary and Pippin, like, say they would do, but we don't really know if they would have. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a, I mean, the Lord of the Rings is so hard because it's, it can be taken as like a really casual narrative because uh-huh. it's just such a good story. Yeah. Or it can be have all these really complex themes. Yes. Like J.R.L. Tolkien almost comes across like a cynic, and like he's a lot more cynical than C.S. Lewis. Definitely. Like when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, everything's optimistic. Yeah. Like we're gonna do it, guys. Yeah. And Lord of the Rings are like, I don't know if they're gonna do it, guys. And I and I think like, I do think when you read 
the Lord of the Rings. It feels like a bit more of a grown-up version of, mm. of of Narnia, but it still has that flavor of like an adventure and idealism. But then, as I've thought about it more, I'm like, there's actually a lot of darkness, um, yeah. and even like um, the fact that to defeat evil, you have to go to its its source. source yeah, is like a really um, yeah kind of aggressive and <laughs> dark. very aggressive yeah. because if I remember like kind of the overarching theme of Chronicles of Narnia is like there's a lot of confronting evil uh-huh. and attempt to do something to your set to your internal yeah. aspect but then you kind of run away from the evil Yeah. but also Chronicles of Narnia also has like I think a silver chair I think silver yeah. chair is probably his darkest book yeah um, which is my favorite which is my favorite as well yeah. it's so good <laughs> Uh, but but like they go into the very belly of the they literally go under the earth to get out uh, Drinian or like mm-hmm. whatever the prince's name is, mm-hmm. um, which is which is so interesting because they kind of follow that Lord of the Rings thing like they go to the source of the power mm-hmm. uh, and and also I remember that um, when when I was talking about Silver Chair uh, with some friends we were talking about how like so much of the queen's kingdom is about like imitation yeah right and like kind of a cynical perverted nate version of narnia right and mordor is the same way yeah right it has people people living in it but they're orcs which are like perverted elves yeah right so it, like yeah there's a lot of cool contrasts there but yeah lord of the rings is such a scary story because no one really comes out like that happy yeah. Because Aragorn is like the descendant of a really powerful, prideful race of men. Mm-hmm. And all he takes over is Gondor, which is like a little city-state version of a one Of Numenor, of yeah. Of Numenor, right? So it's like, like, you know, it's good for him, but like they lose so many people. Like he, he comes in a time of like relief, but also sadness. Yes. And, so, and like that's not really addressed in the book but like you can infer that it's like he's taking over like a depleted Gondor right and like Rohan to win has to lose its king yep and so it's like there's all these really interesting takes on like great sacrifice must be made to achieve Mm -hmm. like goodness and Mm -hmm. restore goodness to the world and like Frodo ends up not even being able to live in Middle Earth anymore which is just so fascinating yeah like and he gave in to the ring as well so it's like I don't really know where I'm going with that. I'm just kind of saying things that are. No, I think I think this is where I've kind of landed recently. Is like the key attribute of a hero is sacrifice. Mm. It Mm. like it almost has to be Um, like, and there's a sense in which it's like the level of sacrifice is proportional to the level of power and responsibility. So. like Frodo loses his finger and can't go back to the Shire. Right. So like he, he, I mean, he did have a high level of responsibility, but as a humble being, he like, his sacrifice was small. Right. Um, But then you think about, yeah, like Rohan as a, as a kingdom loses its leader. Yeah. Um, So, and I think that's, that's an interesting way. Like, in comparing that with what we were talking about with kind of the superheroes, it's like that value of sacrifice is kind of, it feels lost Mm. um, because it's not about sacrifice. It's about self-actualization. It's about just becoming the best version of yourself, right? um, which maybe involves sacrifice along the way, but there's no, um, 
often there's not a loss. Yeah. Um, so like Tony Stark is the culmination of all the superheroes right. because he has to die f- yeah. to save everyone else. Yeah. Um, which I personally, I'm like, eh. Yeah. I thought it was fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, like not the most compelling sacrifice. Yeah. Um, it makes the most sense like in that narrative, but it's by the time he like takes his own life, so much has happened and you're kind of like, Tony Stark's been through like 12 redemptions by yeah, that yeah. time. You're kind of like, okay, like th- we expect him to do this now. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. But interesting that it's like, well, that's the only way. Right. Is that yeah. it has to be sacrificed. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's true in Harry Potter too. Um, yeah. Harry has to, with the Horcruxes. Yeah. Like, um, and Harry Potter is interesting too because there's like, he's, kind of like the chosen one but also evil at the same yeah, time yeah, yeah. um and he also has to die in a way that you think he's not going to come back right um, yeah. so there's real sacrifice there too yeah harry potter i've never seen the movies i just read the books okay um i've been meaning to watch the films i've heard they're, they're pretty good uh but i do remember i really really liked that series because jk rowling like she perfectly encapsulates and she's not a Christian, so it's not quite as like overt as like a C.S. Lewis. But she does a really good job at writing like a big theme in like a, a young adult like yes. narrative, yeah. which is really impressive to me. It's hard to do. Like that's really hard to do to like leave these big questions in like easy to read form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like without your brain hurting, you can like, burn <laughs> through all seven books like with no issues at right. all. Uh, yeah, but like I I because Harry's so fascinating because. His whole life is sacrifice, uh-huh. right? Like, like he, he oh. yeah, yeah. He's also sure. not uh, like think about his environment. Mm-hmm. Like you could put him, you could lump him with like the Joker. Right. You know, like he yeah. has abusive parents yeah. and yeah. Anyways, yeah. no, that's a great point. And and you would see, you you would imagine like he should be like a like a Slytherin because mm-hmm. he should be really cynical and mm-hmm. like should really hate his life. But he doesn't like he appeals to some greater goodness. Yeah. When they kind of, I think they kind of determine that's comes from within himself, mm-hmm. right? Or like, I can't remember exactly. It's been a while since I read the books, but like, yeah, it is really fascinating how like Harry also learns from the sacrifices of other characters, like uh-huh. Dumbledore, um, and like that's true. Like, yeah. So he even is prepared by the time he has to make his own sacrifice. Uh-huh. He like he's know, seen, he's other, seen other characters be that selfless aspect, which would tie really well back into Walter White. Walter White isn't actually willing to sacrifice anything. Right. He's not willing to sacrifice his time for uh-huh. his family. He uh-huh. instead goes and cooks meth. Right. Because he's unwilling to sacrifice his dignity, his dignity or so called pride. Yeah. And take the money from gray matter. Yes. Right. That's right. Because he has this sense of like, no, 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 I will do it myself. Uh-huh. So yeah, there's no, there's just no sense of like giving oneself over to something. Yeah. Uh, which is really interesting. Interesting. Because, because every other character, like all the all the best characters in Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, are willing to give themselves over. Uh-huh. To for for somebody else. Yeah. Um. Even like Boromir, yeah. great example of like tempted by the ring and then, gives in. Uh huh. But then because redeemed, he he's redeemed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Boromir is one of my favorite characters in Lord of the Rings, and I think like, it's easy to kind of like dunk on him for just being like a worse version of Aragorn, uh-huh. essentially. Yes. But like 
He's he's actually such a good character because I see so much of myself in Borg. He might be the single most human feeling character. For sure. You're like, yeah, he makes that makes sense. Yeah, that, take yeah, it. Yeah, take go it. to Gondor. Yeah, do it. I mean, th- that's what I would want to do. <laughs> right. And also, like, he's one of the more cynical characters, right? Uh-huh. He he yells at everyone for not being on the front lines day in and day out. Yeah. Right. Like that's his big reason for wanting the ring. Is it's not to make his dad happy. It's, yeah. It's because he wants Gondor to succeed and I, I, I do I hate that I mean I, I feel like I, I'm a big fan of like community aspect and like duty to community but right. I think I think a duty to community is like a really apparent part of, mm-hmm. of a good hero mm-hmm. whether they be a more anti-hero style because mm-hmm. like, I, I think there's good attributes in both styles of heroes because mm-hmm. like I think Boromir part of his his um, redemption is the duty he feels to like helping the the weaker people right mm-hmm. so like he sacrifices himself for the hobbits mm-hmm. because they're a weaker yeah. they're a weaker race of humans you know yeah so i think like or a weaker race of like beings so i think that's also a really interesting aspect is like the sacrifice is also spawned out of a sense of like duty to others or like responsibility yeah. to others like and so that's what helps you make the sacrifices because it's not about you Yes. About those around you. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I have... Um, I, I'm going to shift a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think my question, after we've done so much analysis, is like, what... Uh, as Christian artists, yeah. how are we to create characters that are truly heroes... Um, that aren't Superman, but also aren't, um, you know, so depraved that they, they're Walter White right. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think the number one thing we should do as Christian artists is not do the pure flicks route. Mm-hmm. So you obviously don't want to create, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen like Facing the Giants or like any of those pure no. flicks classics. I've movies. never seen any of those okay. movies, but I know I know of them. Okay, so. you know of them. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty popular in Christian circles. I think they're. I think Facing the Giants is like a good example of a Christian movie done almost right. Okay. Because it's very overtly Christian. Obviously, like the the head coach like prays a lot yeah. on screen, yeah. and like he has this whole crisis of faith. And what's, but what the problem with facing the giants is his crisis of faith it could be a really good testimony of like even Christians struggle with the idea of God, okay, or like God's yes. goodness, right? Yes. So like you really vibe with that. But what changes him is he is out in like his backyard, which he owns like a like a small farm or something. Mm-hmm. He's like on his knees praying about whatever. I can't remember what his heart <laughs> is. And literally the sun comes up and like. He's like, wow, it's God. Like, God is telling me, like, it's going to be fine. And he basically feels, like, this deep sense of calm, like, just out of nowhere. Right. And you're just kind of like... No, that doesn't happen that to anybody. That doesn't happen to anybody. Yeah. And, like, yeah, you can see God in anything, I guess, but you don't just, like... Normally, life doesn't turn out that way. Right. It's not that it can't happen. It's just most people, that's not their experience. Right. So I think I think as a Christian artist, like, when I... Because well, I still, like, write stories and right. stuff. Um one thing that I try to do is I try to, I basically try to think about each character individually and what I'm trying to teach them and or the audience. Okay. Right? So, like, for a villain, let's say I'm writing a, a story about, like, 
you know, like the the villain is is actually like the, the cop. He's technically mm-hmm. the good guy, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm writing a story, let's say, about like a bank robber, and the main character is like the robber. Mm-hmm. Well, the cop still has to stand for truth and justice, right? Because that should actually challenge the hero. Yeah. Because he's the antagonist. Yeah. So then, I would want to write him. I think the big the big issue is people like movies today are actually afraid to be honest. Okay. Right? Because a lot a lot of television now is like escapism. It's yeah. About like making you feel good for a little while so you can like right. be safe. Forget about your life. So I would I think that like a really good example of a good cop character is um Javert from Les Miserables. Okay. Because he's a cop. Mm-hmm. And he is like, and is is an example of like truth and justice, but his whole life is like a black and white version of truth and justice. Okay. Right? And so it's when he's confronted with like the mercy of Valjean that like yeah. he can't reconcile that in his head, so he like uh-huh. kills himself. So I try to write those characters because I tend to write like a more like anti-hero style. Okay. Like, yeah. Personally, because I just cynical. I'm a cynical <laughs> man. So what do I? I write what I know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think I think as a Christian artist, though, I'm like. I still believe in the truth, and I still believe in justice. So yeah. I want this character to stand for something, like, real. Yeah. Right? And so I, I will honestly write that character as, like, he's actually in the right. Uh-huh. Like, and don't shy away from that. Yeah. Like, he can, you may want the other guy to win, uh-huh. but he should clearly exemplify, like, the right way to do something. Right. Right? So I think that's, like, one thing. Is like, And that should be the inverse for a hero as well. Like... Don't shy away from saying this is the truth. Uh-huh. I think, and I think that's what a lot of characters, well, a lot of writers, and just movies today are afraid of saying. Like, that's why Marvel villains are the absolute worst. They uh-huh. are so bad at writing villains uh-huh. because every villain either gets redeemed somehow, uh-huh. and, and then isn't the villain, or it becomes a hero. Yeah, becomes yeah. a hero, or like Killmonger, right? Is everyone's like Killmonger's one of the best villains ever? No, he's not. He's yeah. just this. He's boring. boring. He's so boring. He's he's a byproduct of his environment, uh-huh. poverty in a in a gentrified neighborhood, which is a bad upbringing. Right. But like they then use that for a, we're supposed to like empathize with him because he's just trying to like free the other people who are gentrified. Right. Yeah. So we're like, okay, let's actually kind of adjust cause, but like he's doing bad things. So and we should acknowledge that he's doing bad things, mm-hmm. like more honestly. And I think I think that is one thing is like we're really afraid to say that someone is like irredeemable, mm-hmm. and and so then we make them redeemable in like a poor way. Mm-hmm. So I believe everyone is redeemable, mm-hmm. but you have to you have to show it like more respectfully to the story of redemption because redemption takes sacrifice yeah. and it takes hard work yeah. and it takes habituation, right? It, there's a lot takes of things. Time. It takes time. Like there's a lot of things that go into redemption. It's not just like the last 20 minutes of a movie and yeah. like, like the newest Black Panther, which I did enjoy, but like they just like totally redeemed the villain okay. in like three minutes, <laughs> right? And and you're just like what? And then they take the the option that was presented in the first twenty minutes of the movie. So you're like, so then why didn't they just choose it then? Right. So it's so like normally redemption is achieved through like your choices being taken away. So yep. Marvel likes to do this thing where the villain is, has basically been defeated. So then they choose to do good at the end anyway. 
Right? <laughs> so then you're like, wait a second. That's not even real redemption. Right. That's just a lack of ability to do wrong. It's a continued product of environment. Well, exactly. It's, yeah, you just continue that same old story about like, don't worry, it's not your fault you're like this. It's just your environment. It's like, and it but takes it, a, good guy, a good guy to come in and fix your exactly. environment. Show you a better way by right. fixing your environment. It's like, no, like you do have a, like your environment can influence you, but yeah. you still have a choice over what you do. Yeah. So like, like this is a, this is a CMA kid like movie to like, I know, but there's this really good movie from 2010 called The Town. Okay. Starring Ben Affleck. I think I've heard of and it. And John Hamm. And it's really good because it's a, it's a, the main characters are bank robbers. Okay. And they like, but like Ben Affleck, is like kind of trying to get out of the game because essentially he like got drafted to the NHL was like kind of a hometown hero mm-hmm. but his lifestyle his choices caused him to like ruin his career and uh-huh. his life so now he just like kind of robs banks okay. because it's easier it, it, is a this a Boston job. movie it's a Boston yeah of course okay. it's a Boston movie. right yeah Ben Affleck yeah it's based got on a me. really good uh, a really good novel called um, Prince of Thieves okay um, which is it's really really good it's even better than the movie right. but um yeah but his so his like his best friend or maybe it's his brother it's played by jeremy renner and yeah so then ben affleck is up is confronted with choices again okay so even in his like criminal world he has to like be a beacon of like moral structure to like the clearly like too far gone jeremy renner character uh-huh. And then, like, the really interesting part is actually, I normally don't love crime movies that have, like, a really strong love story. But the really interesting thing is he actually falls in love with a girl that they had taken hostage on one of their robberies. Oh, interesting. It's like, that's how they, like, met. That's a a messed up relationship. Exactly. So he's, like, keeping it from her, obviously, right? And he's, like, really trying to, like, court her. So then the FBI is involved in there. Like, you don't want the FBI to catch Ben Affleck. But, like, John Hamm is, like... He's basically, they do a really, it's such a good movie because John Hamm's like Javert. Okay. Right? So he basically is like counting on good people do good actions and bad people do bad actions. Yeah. And so he's counting on on the girlfriend, like giving over her robber boyfriend, mm-hmm. Ben Affleck, right? Which, uh, to spoil it, obviously, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. So that, like, it's so interesting because that movie, like, unflinchingly says, John Hamm is right, mm-hmm. right? And, but, and Ben Affleck is wrong. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, though, is Ben Affleck knows he's wrong. Uh, That's what makes it such a good movie because, in my opinion, like, as a Christian, I would want to exemplify how they portray Ben Affleck as, like, an anti-hero because he is someone who is is still doing bad things mm -hmm. but knows he needs to do good things. Interesting. Right? And so his environment is telling him to keep doing bad. Yeah. But he's doing everything in his power to not do evil. Okay. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, he's even trying to, like, tell his friends to do good. Yeah. You know? And is, like, kind of, like, gets mad when they do, like, like, when they take the girl hostage at the beginning of the movie, he's really pissed off because we don't take hostages. Right. So he even has rules because he's trying in his own way to habituate himself into goodness. Yeah. Because there's another, like, subplot is I think he owes money to, like, a Irish mobster. Uh-huh. So he's robbing banks to kind of pay that off as well. Uh-huh. So there's a lot going on. It's a pretty, like, complex plot. But I think that's a really good example. Like, as a Christian artist, you should be telling stories like The Town. Yes. Because okay. truth and justice is still truth and justice. Right. Isn't it? it isn't portrayed as, like, a perverted version of it. Yeah. Right? Which, there are good ways to do that, too. I'm not a talented enough writer to break that down for yeah. myself or anyone. But I think, like, 
that's a really smart way to write a movie mm-hmm. because you don't you don't crap on goodness, mm-hmm. right? But you also show how hard it is to be good. Interesting yeah. too, because good the good isn't a um, internal; mm-hmm. it is an external, like a you know, like a form, kind yeah. of like there is a thing that exists outside yeah. of the people yep. that is good. And they're looking to it mm-hmm. and being challenged by yep. it. So, like, I think a good, um, a good writer tells a story where um, the characters are actually challenged by the good, by yes. this idea of what is good. Yeah. Um, and they may even have to go into evil mm-hmm. to, to find that. So, like, yeah. Ben Affleck, yeah. it, it sounds like. Yeah. Part of what allows him to see what is good is is the bad. Yeah, true. Um, Very true. And I think I've been thinking about kind of like um, you know in Fear and Trembling that there's this description of like the movement, right? Yeah. So it's like starting in the aesthetic mm-hmm. to the ethical, yeah. and then like forward, but also kind of like back to the real world in this yeah. like movement of faith. Right. Um, and I think like. Uh, so the Pure Flix movie, right? Yeah. A great example of something that never leaves. Mm-hmm. It never leaves yeah. the aesthetic. Right. Um, because, like, everything is is black and white, and you just, like, the, the kind of, like, crux is just, like, this realization. Mm-hmm. It's not really, like, a... Um, there's no movement. No. It's no. just like, oh, I, yeah. I was wrong. Oh, glad I messed that up. Right. Now everything's been made right in my mind. Yeah. Right. Or like other, um, you know, we talked about some other other things where it's like um, the problem is fully just about the things that are going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So like it's maybe it's let's say it's abortion, right? Yeah. I talked about this with Ellis. Okay. Like the if the message of your movie is that abortion is evil, yeah, then you've you've limited your world to just what's going on in the world. Right. There's no external. Yeah good really yeah, that's exactly. like that's bigger than the world right um and so it's like bad art stays in that first yeah. that first round that's true um the, and the good writer is able to take it to yes there's something bigger outside yeah i can't help but wonder is there a third or a second movement mm. um yeah and i do think um maybe you touched on this earlier it's like good writers top tap into the time that they're in yeah so a good writer is able to write a story that about someone who sees the the external good yeah but then is also able to tie that into the things that are going on in the in the world yeah so like a a movie like the town let's say is addressing this idea of the good Mm -hmm. but tying it to um, you know the things that are going on in Boston at right. the time. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's interesting because the the I guess in context is like the movie takes place in Charlestown or Charleston, however they mm-hmm. say it there. Probably Charleston. Uh, probably Charleston, uh, and Charleston, especially right after the stock market crash, which was around when the movie came mm-hmm. out, was like extremely poor mm-hmm. and had a lot of crime. Yeah, had a lot of robberies. Like for right. the first time, like bank robberies were like kind of a thing again because right? mm-hmm. they don't happen that often anymore. Because there's just so much security, and so that it was almost like they even have a um, even have a title card at the end of the movie that says like the people in this movie are just like people found anywhere. 
right? And then they are like, the, the men and women of Charleston are good, upstanding citizens. Like, this movie is dedicated to them. Mm-hmm. Like, there are people in Charleston that still do good or whatever right. it said. But it even addresses that. It's like, listen, the, the story of these four robbers doesn't, like, encapsulate all of Charleston in terms of, like, moral standing. But it does encapsulate the conditions that they live in. Right. Like, it does, it, it is an issue for them. And, like, I think, like, a movie about abortion, right? You wouldn't want to write it like necessarily directly about abortion. Right. You would want to try to talk about themes of like what do you define as life? Yeah. Who has more responsibility to whom? Mm-hmm. Right. Um. What, what do we? What, where do we put our respect? You yeah. Know, stuff like that. It's like. And what is sanct? What is what is like? Where where's the sanctity? You right. Know? And, and I myself wrestle with that like still to this day. Like I right. don't really know where I stand on a lot of issues right. because I am asking those questions. And a good story doesn't it doesn't go like that one step deeper and just say like here is here's the truth mm-hmm. and then like we'll just read it back right it says how do people interact with the truth yes because like you're saying ben affleck in yeah. town he's like he sees the truth but he he's challenged by it yeah so and i think like as christians there's a temptation to see the truth as like this kind of like yeah, dry, yeah. like easy yes. thing Yes, exactly. and it's like it's probably the single most like painful thing to encounter. Yes, it's the truth. Right. <laughs> right, no one wants to hear the truth. Exactly. Yeah, no one does. And I think I think that's also like a really good writer will not only take you out of the aesthetic to kind of that next level, but they will also they will also make you realize how um, like. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? How fooled you were by the aesthetic, hmm. you know? So like you kind of don't really want to go back to the aesthetic feeling because it's kind of got a bad taste in your mouth now mm-hmm. because it's confronting you with the truth. So like yeah. now that you've seen the truth, you can't, you can't really go, go back. back. Yeah, because we do want it to be cut and dry. We do want it to be like, oh, there's the truth. There we go. There, yeah. I saw it. Right, I right. acknowledge it. But it's like, no, the truth is is an ev- it's eviscerating. Yeah, right? it eviscerates all preconceived notions it eviscerates all like comfortability because it is not comfortable to say to, to truly engage with the truth is not comfortable you yeah. can look at the truth and not engage with it and kind of stay in that like keep it at bay but i'm more saying if you truly engage with the truth and if you're watching characters that are engaging with the truth yeah right because like john ham in the town he'd be that someone who's like engaged with the truth his whole life uh-huh. right so he's like really like kind of a hard ass and it's like yeah like I'm gonna catch the bad guys because like the truth just wins out yeah so then he's like presents the the girlfriend with the truth and he's like shocked that she like looks at the truth and engages with it and says you know what I'm actually choosing like my criminal boyfriend over like the truth essentially yeah. uh, because but she's not she's not necessarily a bad person for that though in my uh-huh. opinion because she does engage with the truth and what she says is this is true about him, but I also know this to be true about him. I know he's a criminal. That is that is the truth, uh-huh. right? And what he's doing is like wrong. But yeah. I also know that he knows it's wrong. Uh-huh. And John Ham doesn't know that. Right. I know he's trying to like habituate himself into goodness. John Ham doesn't know that. Mm. So she almost like is choosing to let Ben Affleck like keep engaging with the truth because mm-hmm. they don't end up together at the end of the movie. Oh, interesting. Because he just escapes essentially because she refuses to yeah. like, give up his whereabouts yeah but she doesn't get to go with him uh-huh so she more gives him the opportunity 
to do goodness uh-huh. without like just like running off into the sunset. And I'll plug another my favorite movie of all time is in Bruges. Okay. Which, I don't know if you've seen that. I have not. Irish movie. You that is a movie you have to watch because okay. that is essentially like it's all about. Everyone wants movies to be for the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. The movies shot in Bruges, which okay. I don't know if you've been to Bruges, but like mm-hmm. it's the oldest preserved medieval town in the world. Okay. So it's like really picture perfect. Uh huh. It's really nice. Uh huh. But the main character thinks it's a dump. Okay. So he's not fooled by the aesthetic, right? Interesting. And so he is like, and he's grappling with his own truths. Yeah. Because he like, it's about a hit that goes wrong. And uh-huh. He like kills the wrong person, so he's like really sad. Mm-hmm. And he's his partner is basically like hiding out with him, trying to console him, like keep him from like committing suicide. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a brilliant movie. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna go into what you do because you should just watch it. Okay. And you know, tell me what you think, please, because okay. it's so good. But it's like, yeah, it literally is asking those questions of like, we think that there's an like, we think that we have the world figured out all the time. Or we want to think that we do. Right. But when we're confronted with our own error or like with an alternative, obviously correct truth. Yeah. Right. We don't, not everyone knows what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, a little bit different, but I, I, now I can't help thinking about Iron Man's death. Right. Mm. And like, or sacrifice and why that's not sufficient. Mm. And I was thinking about like how much more challenging it was as a viewer when Spider-Man dies. Mm. The like young yeah. person with all the potential yeah. dies. Mm. Now that now you're like now you're drawn in. Yeah. And I like and it's different when it's like the like basically retired superhero that dies. You're like, why do I care? Yeah. <laughs> um and and there like there was a chance to ask the question like why is it worth it for the young person with potential to sacrifice themselves for mm. the retired person yeah but they didn't do that they didn't do that they, yeah. they didn't take they decided to stay in the aesthetic yeah. and just stick with the message of uh give up your life to save your friends right yeah instead of asking a harder question mm. which you know like cuts deeper right. um, but it's also maybe gets closer to the truth yeah yeah that's yeah I think that's interesting because if, if you remember in Endgame when they first approach Iron Man about the time travel like mm-hmm. equations mm-hmm. for some reason it's an equation um, I don't know anything about physics though so it probably would end up being an equation I guess but um, yeah but you know he says to them he got his happy ending uh-huh. Right? He says that to them because he has a wife and he has a daughter. Yeah. And so, you know, that that is, you kind of think like, oh, you're kind of being like a selfish, uh-huh. like, you know, asshole, right? You're not willing to lay down your life for your friends anymore. Right. Like some superhero you turn out to be. And so they, they almost do that um, because Iron Man is, I mean, he's, he's a pretty well-written character, I think. Mm-hmm. But like... He's like redemption after redemption after redemption. Like he keeps getting like more and more like nuanced in his beliefs on the world, and he wants to take responsibility for his actions. Like uh-huh. which is such a huge disparity from like the first movies Iron mm-hmm. Man. And so yeah, I think what, what's interesting though is that is that his resolution is, oh, I learned I learned again what it means to lay down my life for my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of going off interesting, but he does stay in that aesthetic where it's yeah. just like. 
they have this great opportunity of like, well, actually, Iron Man has all the reason to not change the past mm-hmm. with the Infinity Stones mm-hmm. because he has gotten what he wanted, mm-hmm. right? Is like peace, essentially, right. and just like a quiet life mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But all he learns is just like, all. Well, his resolution is just, you don't always get the happy ending, and you got to just, you know, take one for the team. Yeah. And that is a really interesting take because there actually is something to be said about someone who has fought as long as Iron Man has and has done as much for the world as Iron Man had to like, he kind of has a right to say <laughs> no or uh-huh. like someone else step into the gap this time. Yeah. And so I don't know, I, I don't know if, I don't know if Spider-Man is like a great, would have been a great choice to like, take one for the team well so i don't i don't necessarily mean spider-man specifically mm-hmm. but as a whole you have the younger generation of superheroes dying so right. spider-man's like an example yeah right um but you have like the class that has the the potential for the future mm-hmm. i see yeah, yeah yeah are the ones that die yeah because of thanos right and end up leaving like a a damaged, but in some ways better life mm-hmm. for like Thanos was like kind of right, yeah, right. <laughs> about killing everybody. Yeah, right, like, right. We'll make it more peaceful mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, that I mean, that, I mean, it's a really good question because like I think I think what makes me sad about the last two Avengers movies is like Infinity War is probably the best written Marvel movie mm-hmm. in terms of at least for the villain. Like Thanos yes. is so good. Thanos yes. is so good. Great villain. Yeah. And great. then in in Endgame. He just becomes like a bag, a big bad guy with a big army, mm-hmm. and then like all of his motives just kind of become dumbed down mm-hmm. to like set up big action scenes, mm-hmm. which is such a bummer because he poses so many interesting questions. Because you, a really good villain starts to convince you that they're right, yes, and you start to be convinced that Thanos is right, right, and it's like moments where like Spider Man dies, where you're like, actually, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. This is terrible, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think. I don't know. It, I, I feel like there's something, especially in America, we do not respect our elders as a culture. Yeah. Right? So we we view youth as like the epitome of just what a human should be. Younger, stronger, smarter, more potential. Right? Yes. Because we like that self-actualization like we were talking about earlier. So it's, yeah, I think like Avengers Endgame especially really got bit by that like self-actualization bug mm-hmm. where they want everyone to get like a fair shake at living out their best potential yeah right and so i think that's why that's why the death of those young heroes leaves such like a big hole in our minds and our hearts mm-hmm. because we're like oh so spider-man could have been so much more than mm-hmm. what he ended up being he just died mm-hmm. Right, and then Tony Stark like lays down his life, and we're like, "Yeah, save the younger generation." Exactly. Like, well, actually, I don't. Maybe why though? Yeah. Like that's a, it's a yeah. it's a hard question to answer. I don't think I have an answer, but I think that's kind of my two cents. I think that the only like, yeah, I think I can only land on just the they really played into the events of today. Yes. In, in that story. and didn't challenge the narrative. No, exactly. Uh, that's why they the, say the, the truth isn't yeah. challenging. Yeah. No. Um, so I, I won't I know you got plenty to do this yeah. upcoming week yeah. for finals. Yeah. Um so I'll kind of wrap up by just asking like how 
um, so we talked about kind of like how Christian artists and writers can create um, better characters um, and better stories. Yeah. Um, it, it, purely in the like technical aspect of writing. Yeah. What do you see that going on in Christian circles, and why, if not, why is why is it not happening? Mm. Yeah, that's a great way to end because I, I feel really passionate about this. Okay. I think there's a lot of talk about it in uh-huh. Christian circles, and I think that and there's quite a few Christians in Hollywood that don't like speak out about their faith. So mm-hmm. like, I don't know the numbers or anything, but mm-hmm. like I know that like um, Ryan Coogler, the guy who did Black Panther, mm-hmm. held like prayer meetings at okay. on set, uh-huh. and like whoever wanted to go could go, and apparently that was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And you know, so. If someone who's at that level is doing that kind of stuff, I can only imagine there's a lot of you know Christian influence still to this day in some aspect. I think I think um, in Christian circles, Christianity has taken a terrible turn for the worse in terms of leading in art. We used to really be leaders in art, yeah, like totally. Yeah, we we were trying to kind of do everything for everybody. Yeah, and science and, and science, and, and yeah, everything. exactly. Yeah, we were doing everything, and I and there was this shift. And I don't know when exactly it happened, but there was this shift where we started to remove ourselves from the conversation, Mm. right? And so we weren't involved so much in the movies, and we were more involved in the regulation. So there was like all those rules about what could be shown on screen. All came from the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church agreeing Uh that movies should be censored. Interesting. And that movies should depict certain things that are like bad for health, right? Yeah. So instead of taking the reins and trying to show a better way, we just raised our voices and, and threw a tantrum and uh-huh. like forced people to try to like mold themselves to our Christian views, yeah. which is the antithesis of what Paul says. Because hmm. he says if, if, you, if, you're, if you as a Christian are looking at another Christian, hold them accountable to what Christ says, but you can't hold a non-believer to a standard that they don't adhere to. And so instead of, instead of offering a different way to others. We tried to make it the only way, right? Uh-huh. So we we stopped showing people the truth and we tried to tell other people yeah. what to say and what the right. truth was, right? right. And and uh, so I think like yeah, I think I think it, it all kind of started with that is when we started kind of withdrawing. And now I think people are wanting to get back into it, but we're doing it in a way where it's it's still kind of the same goal in mind. It's yeah. like Tell them what the truth is, right? Just like force them to accept it. Like that's why Pure Flix is so bad and boring to right. watch, is because it doesn't leave you questioning, oh, maybe my way of thinking wasn't right all along. Mm-hmm. Instead, you just kind of sit there like, man, I hate Christians even more. Yeah, it's yeah. like a bad movie. <laughs> right. Right. So, like, I didn't listen to that. Right. So, I think, I think, I have a lot of hope for it. I think that, like, there's a lot of potential, and people are always going to be grappling with ideas of like truth and justice and mm-hmm. what have you like all those themes still exist today the problem is we've won as an audience allowed people to get away with telling aesthetic stories yes. like marvel movies yeah. right and so that's a big issue mm-hmm. which i think is that's also is what hold is what's holding christians back because as a christian we should tell a good truthful story and mm-hmm. we can't when all everyone wants is an aesthetically pleasing experience yeah, yeah. so that is bad mm-hmm. and then also I think that Christians need to realize that 
when you're telling a story about fallen characters, just t- just like tell a story about fallen characters, mm-hmm. right? It's like sometimes it's okay for a Christian to write a story about a really demented Walter White character. Yeah. And you'll gain some respect for that. Yeah. Because you're you are willing to grapple with those questions yourself. Yeah. So I think I think Christians need to do two things. They need to show that they, they need to show that they are wrestling with the same things that everyone else are. Mm. Because that makes them relatable. And mm-hmm. that's the number one way to gain an audience is to be relatable. And then on the other aspect, it's to show a different way. Mm. Right? So I think that's kind of the two things. Because it, it very much the old guard of Christian artists is like stay away, like stay removed. And yeah. kind of like our generation, like the Gen Z Christians are like, we gotta be really involved. Like that's why Christian TikTok is a thing. It's really cringy. Yeah. But they are engaging on a platform that right. like everyone else is using. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's kind of how I would answer that is like Christians for some reason quit doing art mm-hmm. and quit leading in science. Mm-hmm. We just kind of like stopped engaging. We checked out. Now we realize, oh, we don't like where this is going, so we need to check back in. Mm-hmm. But we're not checking back in in a in a very uh, respectable way, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't agree. think we, we we don't offer a solution. We just say what you're doing is bad. Yes, there's there's no actually creation. Exactly. It's just moderation. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I think that's how I would end. Is I, I think Christians need to create something, not just try to regulate and moderate. Yeah. So, yeah. Agreed. Hey, Braden, thanks for having me back yeah. on. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, this was really fun. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Henry. Of course.